Um, well, if you're, whether you are new or whether you are a member of our church, uh, today we are actually beginning uh, a new sermon series. And this new sermon series is through the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 5 to 7. And the reason why we're looking at gospel, the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 5 to 7, because that section covers what's famously known as the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, this, uh, if you've never heard of the Sermon on the Mount, just know this is a collection of teachings that are considered the most important teachings of Jesus in one place. And so we're going to be going through the Sermon on the Mount for the next 15 weeks. So that's from now to July. Now why on earth would we do that to you guys? Why would we go 15 weeks doing a deep dive into the Sermon on the Mount? Well, I hope today could help explain exactly why we're doing that. So if you have your Bibles or if you have your programs, we're going to look at actually what happens right before the Sermon on the Mount. So it's going to be Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, all the way to chapter 5, verse 1, is where, and this is where Jesus begins to give the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, a little bit of context, Jesus, he was baptized he uh, was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days, and now he is in the beginning of his ministry. And look what Jesus does when he begins this new career as a rabbi teacher. In verse 17 of chapter 4, it reads, And from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teach, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And so his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. And seeing the crowds, he went up on a mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. This is the reading of God's word. So one group of people that I really appreciate in our church community is our healthcare workers. All of you who are doctors, nurses, OTs, PTs, just know you are super appreciated in this community. Not just for the honorable work that you do, uh, but for all the personal advice that you give me about my health. Uh, it's awesome. Whenever I feel any type of pain or ache, I could just go out to one person and be like, hey, man, can you check out, like, my, uh, what's going on? And it's really fascinating when I do this, uh, figuring out, like, I, I kind of come to the conclusion that PTs and OTs, their whole job is just telling you what you've been doing wrong your whole life. That's kind of what it almost feels like. I remember one time my knee was hurting. I was like, my knee is just, like, feeling weird. And so I talked to one of my, uh, one of our physical therapists who were here. And he was like looking at my knee and he was like, hmm, show me how you walk. And I was like, okay. So I was just like walking back and forth, back and forth. And he was like, oh, I see the problem. You've been walking wrong all this time. And I'm like, there's a wrong way to walk? Like I've been walking since I was like two, you know, or one. What's going on here? And I remember thinking like, wow, like every day all my life I've been walking this way and I guess it was all wrong. Another time I remember uh, my, my shoulder was hurting. I was like, what's wrong with my shoulder? It's like, you know, just this sharp pain. And there was an, an occupational therapist was at my place, and he was, all, he was saying, hmm, like, your shoulder hurts? Show me how you sit. And I was like, okay. And I sat down. He was like, that's the problem. You've been sitting wrong your whole life. I'm like, there's a wrong way to sit? 
like, what is going on here? And I remember thinking, like, wow, this was like the normal, natural things that I did in life, walking and sitting. And I just presumed this is how everybody walked. This is how everybody sat. And yet these were the causes of the physical aches and pains that I was going through as I got older. And so these PTs and these OTs, God bless their souls, they showed me a new way to walk, a new way to sit. Otherwise, the pains would continue and the aches would continue on as well. And the reason why I share this story is because I think this is what Jesus is doing for us in the Sermon on the Mount. You see, many of us, we're familiar with passages in the Sermon on the Mount. Whether you've been to church or not, you probably have heard of things that Jesus mentions in these teachings. The golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Turn the other cheek. Forgive and love your enemies. Judge not lest ye be judged. The Beatitudes, blessed are the poor, blessed are the, are the meek. We've heard those before. And yet while we've heard those passages before, do we know what Jesus is actually doing? Do we know what Jesus is actually saying and why he's saying it? And I think a lot of us, even though we're familiar with those passages, we kind of, we kind of received it in like isolated passages. And we almost treat it like individual episodes of like Friends or Seinfeld. This self-enclosed episode that has no context whatsoever. And that's how we receive most of the passages in the Sermon on the Mount. But what actually needs to happen is the Sermon on the Mount, those individual passages like turning the cheek and forgiving and loving your enemies, you shouldn't treat it like Friends or Seinfeld. It's more like Ozark. It's more like Breaking Bad. It's like a Korean drama. One episode, you'll be confused what's going on. You have to look at the series to make sense of what Jesus is actually doing. And this is what I think Jesus is trying to do. When Jesus preaches these sermons or the, the Sermon of the Mount, he's not telling us how to be just a better person. Getting all oftentimes when we hear this, we go, oh yeah, that's, that's a good principle. Yeah, I should turn the other cheek. I should forgive. It's just kind of principles of how to be a good person. But I don't think that's what Jesus is doing at all. What Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is he's trying to show us the way to be truly human. To be a truly human being. Because the way we presume life goes, the natural way of life, it's causing aches and pains in us too. In our, but not in our bodies, in our souls. There's something wrong with us. There's something wrong and really broken in the world. And what the Sermon on the Mount is doing is Jesus is trying to introduce a new holistic way to live. A new way to live. And he's trying to form a community to gather around this vision of this new way to live. Now, why does Jesus have to do this? Why does Jesus offer us a new way to be human? And what does this new way actually look like? If you've been in a church for a while, you know I always have three points. But today, no three points. I still have points, uh, but we're just going to go. And if you are taking notes and you want a couple points, it's literally just, my main goal is I just want to understand the Sermon on the Mount. And I want to preview the Sermon on the Mount. And I want to journey through Matthew chapter 4, verse 17 to chapter 5. Give a little bit of context, journey through the Old Testament. And I want to end with just a couple of pastoral exhortations. To help us, I, I, I want today to unlock the Sermon on the Mount. So that we could understand how do we approach these next 15 weeks. Why do we approach it this way? And why do we even need these next 15 weeks that are there? And so with that being said, let's do a deep dive into the purpose of this whole series. Um, you know, when I first became a preacher, some of you guys might have known this before, but uh, I actually had a reputation when I first started preaching. You know what my reputation was? Um, I was known as the sex porn pastor. And it wasn't because of some sexual scandal. 
The reason why is because I gave a sermon once about sex and pornography, and another a church, they invited me to give that same sermon. Another church invited me to give that same sermon. So I started preaching everywhere about sex and pornography. And so I'd go into a coffee shop, and I'd run into somebody who I just met, like, hey, you're the, you're the porn pastor. I'm like, man, don't say that so loud. Like, people are going <laughs> to misinterpret that totally. But the reason why is because that was just kind of like my thing at the time. And I remember every time I would go and guest speak at a church or some type of parachurch, they all expected me to talk about sex. That was just kind of the anticipation that was there, because that's how they knew me yet. Imagine next week we announce Jesus is coming to our church. He's going to guest preach at our church for just this one Sunday. Now, based on what you know about Jesus, what would you guess would be the topic that Jesus would preach on? If you grew up in the church or you kind of went to Sunday school or you're not part of the church, you might guess, oh, Jesus is probably going to preach on how to be good. You know, honor your parents, don't steal, don't murder. That might be some of our guesses. If you grew up in that more conservative reform circle, you would think the cross, of course. Jesus would probably preach on the cross and the resurrection. If you come more from that progressive camp, you might think, oh, justice and mercy. That's, of course that's what Jesus would preach on. But if you read the Gospels, especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and you saw what Jesus was really about, it would be crystal clear what Jesus would choose to preach on. The kingdom of heaven. He preached on the kingdom. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus talked about the topic of the kingdom more than any other topic. In 28 chapters of Matthew, the kingdom is mentioned 50 times. That's like almost once every other page. And, G and Matthew, he actually says when Jesus preaches, Matthew says, you know what Jesus, the summary of all his teachings are? He tells us in the, in the verse we read. Look at chapter 4, verse 17 again, the very beginning. It says, from that time, Jesus began to preach. And look what Matthew says, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was Jesus' thing. Everywhere he preached, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven. Now, what does Jesus mean when he says the kingdom of heaven? I feel like a lot of us have heard that term before, and yet we kind of get tripped up by it because it's so convoluted. We're like, huh, how do I actually, what does he actually mean when he says that? Um, Many ways to explain that definition, but I'm going to try to be as simple as possible. I like the way Dallas Willard defines it. He says, quote, God's kingdom is the range of his effective will. Meaning, another way to put, put it is, the, the kingdom of heaven is the place or sphere where God's will is done. Wherever you see God's will being done, that's the kingdom of heaven. Where everything is the way that God wants it to be. Wherever God wants to be done, it is done. That is the kingdom of heaven. That's why heaven is the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because God's will is done in heaven. That's why Israel, they were supposed to be a kingdom on earth. They were supposed to have God's will be done. That's why you are capable of being called a person who has the kingdom of heaven. Because if you are doing God's will, then that is the kingdom being in you. Now again, this language of kingdom, it sounds very ancient. We think of castles and so forth and it sounds like this different place. But I'd actually argue that if this definition is true, a kingdom is a place where someone's will is done, then we see kingdoms everywhere today. They're everywhere. For example, Disney. Disney has a kingdom. It's called Disneyland. It is a kingdom, a place where the will of Walt Disney is seen everywhere. Disneyland, it is a 
well-planned-out theme park that makes it as successful as it is. You know why? Because Walt Disney, he wanted Disneyland to be clean, where every day felt like opening night. So you know what happens at Disneyland? Every night they close, they're just working from uh, 2 a.m. to 5 a.m. to clean the parks. Also, I noticed there's never peanuts on the floor. There's never gum anywhere. There's never trash. And if there is trash, someone cleans it up. It's all about cleanliness. That's Walt Disney's will. Notice that it's very family-friendly. Adults are entertained. Children are entertained. It's Walt Disney's will. Notice it's super magical because he wanted it to be magical. So they're not workers. They're cast. The workers are all, like, acting because they want it to be a magical place. When you go to Disneyland, you are experiencing the will of Disney being done. You are experiencing what Walt Disney wanted. Here's another example, Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A has a clear kingdom. All the Chick-fil-A restaurants where the will of the CEO, Dan Cathy, is being seen everywhere. Dan Cathy, he wants high-quality chicken. So no frozen chicken. There's no frozen chicken. It's all fresh. They want high-quality customer service. So that's why all the workers go, my pleasure, my pleasure. And Dan Cathy, he has Christian values, so they close on Sundays. Why? Because when you go to Chick-fil-A, you are experiencing the will of Dan Cathy being done. Here's my favorite example, retreat sites. Retreat sites. I'm not talking about those, like, nice retreat sites. I'm talking like those ghetto Asian retreat sites owned by, like, an Asian church. And when you drive up there, there's, like, this one Asian man who's, like, living there. You ever been to one of those before? I remember I went to an Asian retreat site once. And we were in the worship hall because we were, you know, having worship at the time. And we didn't have enough chairs for everybody. So we're like, oh, let's, let's go. There's, there's chairs, like, in the, diff in the building next door. So we grabbed more chairs. We laid them out. And we are worshiping. And ten minutes later, that old man, that Asian old man who's there in every retreat site, he came. And he was furious. Like, how dare you move the chairs into this room? And I was so confused. I was like, dude, they're, they're just chairs. And we're going to put them back. Like, we didn't mess anything up. Like, why are you so angry? And it took somebody in our church to explain to me going, you know why he's so angry? It's not the chairs. He lives here. This retreat site, it's his kingdom. It's his kingdom. His will must be done. Whatever he wants, it has to be his way. And I realized like, oh my gosh, that's so true. And I violated his kingdom rules. The kingdom is everywhere. This is what kingdom means. We all experience kingdoms in our lives. And in fact, we all have our own kingdoms. All of us do. We all have desires. We all want to do things a certain way. We all want our wills to be done. And what often happens is because of that, we meet other people with their own kingdoms, their own desires, and we clash. We always clash in our relationships. Here's a classic example, marriage. You know the, uh, the time you fight the most with your spouse, it's usually the first three years of marriage. You know, that's what often happens. And when you guys fight, you think your spouse is crazy. Like, she's crazy. That's why we're fighting. He's crazy. And you go see a counselor to help them show your spouse how crazy they are. And your counselor will be like, y'all both crazy. <laughs> both y'all crazy. And the reason why is because what's happening is you're witnessing a clash of kingdoms. A clash of two people's desires and wills being fought against one another. Of your will being done and the spouse's will being done. And that happens everywhere with all relationships. Now why? Why does this happen? Why do our kingdoms clash in this way? This is the Bible's premise of the problem of the world. The problem of the world, according to the Bible, is that there is something deeply broken 
in all of our kingdoms, our desires, our wills, and the way that we want to be done. Because human beings, we are never meant to determine for ourselves how we want to live, how we are to have things done. That was never the in intentional or original design. Uh, nerd hat, okay, I'm going to put on a nerd hat. So we're going to be a little bit of theology. Just give me 10 minutes to be to nerd out. And this, this I, I think this will pay off. So um, do you know the first place in the Bible where the concept of kingship or ruling or reigning ever appears? Like the first place in the Bible where that concept of king or rule ever appears in the entire Bible. Does anyone know? If you ever get asked that question, a good guess is always, just always, if you don't know the answer, just say Genesis. It's the beginning. It's the answer to all the trivia questions. In Genesis chapter 1, you see a scenario where God is a king, where he created all things. He is forming a people, Adam and Eve. And he is going to describe to them, or he tells them to live under his reign. King, people, reign. And what happens is when he tells them, hey, in this reign, which is Eden, he tells them, I am the king, you are my people, Adam and Eve, and Eden, this is the, you're living under my reign. Now, what does it look like to live under the reign of God in Genesis? In chapter 1, verse 26, we see it. God tells them, have dominion over all the earth. And there it is, the first time we see this idea of kingship or rulership. Human beings were meant to rule alongside with God over all of creation. That was the original design. But they are to rule according to God's ways. Meaning that it is not human beings who define good and evil. It's up to God to define good and evil as humans rule. It's like um, if you ever owned the Chick-fil-A franchise. If you got your own franchise, you're like, this is my franchise. I'm the owner of this Chick-fil-A. Kind of. You're the owner... You're kind of ruling on behalf of Dan Cathy, right? And you're supposed to do it the way Chick-fil-A does it. All the rules and guidelines. And that's how you have a successful Chick-fil-A. Now imagine if you are that owner of that Chick-fil-A franchise. And you go, hmm, you know, I kind of want to do things my own way. Let's not do fresh chicken anymore. That's, I don't like throwing away old chicken. Let's do frozen chicken. And let's imagine you started doing that. As imagine you go, you know, training workers to say my pleasure is just not worth it. Let's just have the workers come and they don't say it anymore. And imagine you go, and you know what, this whole Sunday closing thing, that's ridiculous. Let's make a profit. We are open on Sundays. You know what would happen if you did that as an owner of a Chick-fil-A? In your restaurant would be chaos. Who are you anymore? Who are you? You will break trust with all your customers. Why, aren't my, why don't people say my pleasure? What kind of restaurant is this? And you will break your relationship with Dan Cathy. <laughs> what are you doing with my franchise? What are you doing with my restaurant? This is the Bible's premise of the problem of the world. Human beings, we were created to cultivate, to rule, and to reign over a kingdom, over God's behalf. But we decided to be our own kings, to run our own kingdom, our own way. And now there's chaos. There's chaos in our lives. There's broken trust with one another. And there's a broken relationship with now God, the king. This is the Bible's premise. Now, what does the Bible say is the solution? How do we fix ourselves out of this mess? Not try harder, not, hey, guys, you need to just, like, obey the rules. But the Bible's premise is that the king must do something. The king must do something. God must do something. Now, here's a second trivia question. Do you know in the Bible where God is explicitly called a king for the very first time? Where God is called king. Genesis, right? Like that's, I, I told you that, but ah, it's not Genesis. 
it's Exodus. It's actually Exodus. The first time God is explicitly called a king, it comes from Exodus. And the reason why is because uh, after Adam and Eve, they, you know, they rebelled against God and they didn't stay in his kingdom. God, he, if you know the Genesis story, he got Abraham and Sarah, formed a people. So God is king. He forms a people. They become Israel. Egypt enslaves them. And then God rescues them. And as soon as he rescues them from the Red Sea, where does God take them? To a mountain, Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, God gives them a covenant where the Ten Commandments come and all these other commandments come that is really confusing to us as Christians. But he gives this commandment that's there. And what's he doing? God is king. He is forming a people, Israel. And he is telling them this is what it looks like to live under my reign. And that's Mount Sinai, the commands that are there. And in Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 to 2 and 18, this is what they say about God. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Why? Because this is how God reigns. This is how he rules. This is the king of the Bible. He is a king who forms a people, who describes to people what it looks like to live under his reign. And Israel, they were supposed to be that people. A different kingdom amongst all the kingdoms who lives differently under God's rule. Because they have a God as their king, not somebody else and not themselves. But if you know the story of Israel, you know that even Israel, even though that they were selected by God and they were given God's commands, that they failed to live under God's reign. They ruled their own kingdom. They just, just totally just ignored God. Israel eventually got exiled. They're now oppressed by rulers. And so now the last question is, well, what's God going to do now? People keep screwing up. And so the Old Testament, the rest of the story is always about this prophecy now. There is a prophecy that one day God himself will now come. And God's going to bring the kingdom to this world. And not just Israel, but all the nations will be blessed. All the nations will be blessed. And that's the pattern. That's the way the whole Old Testament goes. God is king. He is forming a people. And he is going to describe to them how it looks like under his reign. And the people were just waiting for this to happen again. They were waiting and they're waiting, God's people are waiting, hundreds of years pass. And all of a sudden, there's a person named Jesus who comes into the scene. This rabbi who Matthew introduces as a king. He was born as the son of David. He is somebody who uh, kings bow down to him, the wise men come. Herod, another king, is threatened. Jesus comes as a king. And Jesus, he starts preaching, hey, the kingdom of God, that thing you were waiting for, it's here. It's here. And what's really fascinating is after Jesus makes that announcement, do you see what Jesus does? Like right after he goes, the kingdom of God is here. He doesn't get a chariot, go, let's go to Rome or let's fight. Right after in chapter 4, the passage we read in verse 18 to 22, Jesus walks around the lake. And he goes, hey, fishermen, come follow me. Hey, fishermen, come follow me. Why is Jesus doing that? He's a king. And what kings do, according to the Bible, is they form a people. He's grabbing a people. He's telling come follow after me. And then what's very fascinating is in verse 23 of chapter 4, look what Jesus does. After he grabs the people, in verse 23, look what it says. And Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Jesus goes throughout all of Galilee and he is teaching, teaching, proclaiming, proclaiming. Now what is Jesus teaching? What is Jesus proclaiming? If we only knew if there's only a section in the Bible that would explain to us what Jesus was saying, 
Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 6, Matthew chapter 7. Jesus was preaching the Sermon on the Mount. He was letting everybody know this is what it looks like to live under the reign of Jesus as king. That's what the Sermon on the Mount's about. What does it look like to live under King Jesus? And what's interesting is Matthew, we call the Sermon on the Mount. Notice Matthew, there's nowhere where he mentions the Sermon on the Mount. You know what Matthew calls it? Look at verse 23. Teaching their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. Jesus is describing the kingdom. He's describing what the kingdom looks like. What it looks like to live under his reign. Jesus is king. He has come to form a people. And he is inviting us to come and live under his rule. So the Sermon Mount, it's not simply, hey, this is a good thing that you guys should do. But it's actually describing this is God's kingdom and the way the world is supposed to be. That's what the Sermon on the Mount's about. And so when we listen to the Sermon on the Mount these next few weeks, these are not just nice things for us to consider going, you know, if I have time, I'll do that. Or, you know, that's a, if I want to, when I have space in my life to, like, try that, I'll try that. That's not actually what the Sermon on the Mount's about. The Sermon on the Mount's actually, this is what you need in life. This is actually what real life is. Because this world is filled with broken kingdoms. Our life itself is actually a broken kingdom. And explains why we feel as much ache and pain that we do in our souls. Our marriages, our work life, our family. It's being done right now, oftentimes, according to our wills. And what Jesus is saying is that's not the way it's supposed to be. The world needs a greater kingdom. We need a greater king to live under. And that leads to, well, what does this look like? What can we expect for Jesus when he describes this kingdom in the next 15 weeks? So let me just kind of preview what's going to happen for us if you journey with us through the Sermon on the Mount. As you journey through the Sermon on the Mount, expect three things to happen. If me and Pastor Sam do our jobs, expect three things to happen as we journey through the Sermon on the Mount. Number one is this. We're going to be challenged as a community. If you really take in what Jesus is trying to say, you cannot help but feel absolutely challenged by what Jesus is saying, this is real life, this is true life, because it is so different than how human beings naturally live. Because Jesus is going to say things that we're just like, you really expect that from us? Like, you really want us to live that way? For example, Jesus goes, you know how power works in my kingdom? Whoever has the most are the least. And whoever has the least are the most important. It's like, wait, you really think that's how life is going to work and it's going to happen in my life? Or Jesus, he would tell, you know how relationships work in my kingdom? The people you despise the most that you want to stay away from, you got to actually serve them the most. you got to pursue them the most. Again, that sounds bonkers. Or, hey, you want to know how anxiety works in my kingdom? That thing that you worry about the most that you're trying to hold on to, you got to let that go. You just got to let that go. It feels, it goes against every impulse of human beings. And yet... When a community actually embraces this, follows it, and lives by the challenges of a certain amount, that community becomes radically different in the world. It just shakes things up. Larry Hurtado, he's an author. He wrote this book called The Destroyer of the Gods. And he said, you know um, the early church? You know why they became so influential? Where they literally toppled the most powerful kingdom, Rome, in the first century? The early church had five distinguished markers Five characteristics that made them stand apart from all their pagan neighbors. And here are the five. Number one, the church was multiracial and multiethnic. The church was a group that had 
races all over the world in one community. Absolutely unique. Number two, the church was hospitable to the poor and suffering. They cared for the needs of the less fortunate. Number three, the church was committed to the sanctity of life, to the unborn and to those who are children. They were absolutely committed to protecting that. Number four, the church was sexually countercultural. In a world where sex was just all over the place, they said, nope, it's reserved for man, woman, and marriage. And number five, the church was a community committed to nonviolence. They did not retaliate with violence against, with violence. And those are the five distinguishing markers of what marked the early church. Now, if you look at these five characteristics and you apply it to modern times today, don't some of these sound familiar in certain camps? For example, multiracial, hospitals of the poor, doesn't that sound blue? Doesn't that sound like, like if you're democratic, if you're progressive, like, yeah, that's right. We should be like that. Preach on, Jesus. And that sounds good. But then look at number three and four. Highly committed to the sanctity of life, counterculture sexually. Doesn't that sound very red? Republican, conservative? And all the conservatives are like, yeah, you preach it, Jesus. And number five, nonviolence. Doesn't that sound like nobody? Like nobody does that today. And yet, and yet all five of these together is historic Christianity. It is a unique people group where they hold all five intention because the values of the kingdom, it is neither blue, it is neither red, it is something altogether different. And if we ourselves find ourselves leaning way more one way or the other, it could be we're actually leaning much more to the values of the kingdom or of the world than we are of the kingdom of God. And so the Sermon on the Mount, wherever you lean naturally, it's going to challenge you to break that category wherever you stand and to say there is a new category that Jesus is introducing of how to live in this world. Secondly, as we journey through the Sermon on the Mount, we're not just going to be challenged as a community, but we're going to be confronted individually. Again, during these next few weeks, if Pastor Sam and I do our jobs, uh, we're gonna, Jesus is going to say things that are going to make you uncomfortable and probably at least once, he's really going to piss you off. You're going to be really like, what the heck? Are you serious? And you're going to email me. I'm like, I know, right? J Jesus guy, like, why does he say that stuff? <laughs> but it's Jesus, he's going to say things. Because Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he goes deep. He gets deep. He's not just talking about, hey, love people, love people, man. That's not, why would people kill him for that? Why would he be like, hey, you should love each other. And the Romans are like, kill him. Like, who? like, that's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus, he's going to talk to you about your broken relationships that you've been avoiding for a long time. Jesus, he's going to talk about your money and how you choose to invest it and really go, what are you doing? Jesus is going to talk about your sexuality and how you choose to practice it. He's going to go all over the places that are uncomfortable. Why? I like what Tim Mackey says who famously founder of the Bible Project, he says, quote, this is why Jesus does this. Jesus in these teachings, the Sermon on the Mount, he's going to force every single one of you to deal with the core issues, the darkest part of your character, because Jesus is convinced that the renewal of the human condition and the healing of the human race, it has to do with facing the dark, dark evil that we've all given into and the lies that we all bought into about what's most important and our identity and what it means to be significant in the world. He's going to open up all of that because he won't allow any part of our lives to escape the gravity of his wisdom and of his creative love. And that's going to feel painful 
because all of us are in this room and we all have an idea of what it means to be human, what we're after in life, what brings a good life, what brings significance, and Jesus, he's going to challenge all of that. He's going to call us to reorganize all of that around Jesus' call to live under his reign. And he's going to go deep in there, not just because he wants to challenge you or because he wants to confront you, but this leads to the third thing that we should expect. He actually wants to do something deeper. He wants to heal you. He wants to heal you. Do you notice in Matthew chapter 4, after Jesus teaches and preaches and about the gospel of the kingdom, do you notice what he does right after that? Notice what again it says in chapter 4, verse 23. He went throughout all Galilee, teaching the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and then look what happens. And healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. Jesus doesn't, after he preaches, go, and now let's rule, and dominates people, and all the powerful come. Right after that, he heals people, and all the sick come, all the broken come. And then after the Sermon on the Mount, you know what happens in Matthew chapter 8, verses 9? If you look at your Bibles, you just see the headings. All stories filled with people getting healed. All these sick people continue to come to Jesus. Why does Jesus do this? Why is, this, why is Matthew organized this way? Because Jesus is trying to show us what it looks like to follow him. What it looks like to live under his reign. When you come to him, you will be healed. The good news will be to the poor. The broken hearted will be fixed. Freedom will be given to those held captive. You're not just going to be challenged and confronted by Jesus, but if you really hear what he's saying, you're going to be healed in ways that you had no idea you need to be healed by. Because you may not realize it right now, but we're messed up. We have a lot of messed up stuff going on in our hearts. And the problem is we don't see how messed up we are because oftentimes you don't realize how messed up you are until you leave the mess. You ever notice that about people? That you don't realize how messed up your situation is until the mess is gone. You know, during the pandemic, when we're all home, I, I was like all of you. I just stayed home and gained weight. That's all I did. No exercise, eat whatever I wanted. And as I'm sitting on my couch watching Netflix eating, I was like, this is unhealthy. <laughs> like, I knew this was not healthy. I knew I was probably gaining weight. But it wasn't until the pandemic was over and I saw old pictures of me of, during the pandemic. I was like, oh, dang, I was super unhealthy. I was really not, I was really gaining weight. But I didn't realize that until after, once it was passed, right? That's what happens. We don't realize that until once we're done and once we're out of the mess, how messy we were. Or think of that friend of yours. That friend, like they're in a toxic relationship. Or think of your past dating life where you were in a toxic relationship and you knew it was toxic. You're like, yeah, she's not good for me. You're like, yeah, he's not good for me, but I love him. I love her. And all your friends go, ah, this isn't a good relationship. And you go, no, man, we're going to make it work. It's, it's, I love her. I love him. And then once you break up and you look back, you go, Wow. That was a toxic relationship. I was miserable. We just were not compatible. And all your friends would say, yeah, we've been telling you that. And you don't realize that until after you break up. You don't realize how messed up and toxic it is until the toxicness goes away. And this is what Jesus is doing. You don't realize how spiritually unhealthy you really are. You don't realize how messed up your relationships actually are more than you actually feel. Because you don't realize how much autonomy you're living by. How much of God is really not in your life. You don't realize how broken the way you choose and make decisions are. You don't realize how dark your heart is. And what Jesus wants to do is he's going to point that out. 
And he's going to offer healing for that. I need to heal you because that's messing you up right now. And this is the Sermon on the Mount. This is the next 15 weeks. Aren't you excited? Aren't you excited about that? But I hope that this could, could provide a, a broad framework of what to expect on Sundays. We all live in kingdoms. We clash with other kingdoms. It leads to brokenness because this is not the way it's supposed to be. But Jesus comes as a king. And he invites us to live under his kingdom. And he's going to challenge us. He's going to confront us. And he's going to heal us. Now let me give three pastoral exhortations to our church before I close. As we journey these next 15 weeks, if I could just offer an exhortation to those of us who are members, and even those of us who are here visiting for the first time. Number one is this. As we go through this journey, uh, let's not just be hearers, but let's be doers of the word. Do you know how Jesus ends this sermon? The Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever given. The last point he gives is, it's actually not like, and you know, but I love you. Like, that's not what Jesus does. He ends with the parable in chapter 7, verse 24 and 26. Look what Jesus says. This is how the sermon ends. And everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. What separates the wise and the fool is not if you hear it. It doesn't matter if you hear it. They both hear the sermon. What separates it is one person hears it and does nothing, and one person hears it and does it. As we go through the Sermon on the Mount, I hope we don't just come going, that was a nice TED talk. Now let's go to the source and let's find lunch. Like that's not what Jesus is trying to do. He's like a PT, my, P, my physical therapist friends who say, hey, you're messed up here. You got to do these exercises or you're just not going to get better. And I'll be like, okay, if I don't do it, I'm just not going to get better. This is how the Sermon on the Mount is supposed to do for us. It can only challenge us, confront us, and heal us. Not if we just hear it, but if we practice it. That's why every week, expect that there's going to be some exhortation to our church of how can we practice this in our lives where we don't just hear it on Sunday, but we practice it throughout the week. Here's a second exhortation, though. Let's not, not just, don't just do it, but let's do it together as a community. Let's do it together as a community. You know the Sermon Mount, when you ever, if you ever read through it, you're going to feel like, this sounds ridiculous. Like, who can do this? This feels impossible. But the reason why is because we often receive it as individuals. When you receive the Sermon Mount as an individual, of course it's hard. It's like trying to diet. It's hard by yourself. You have a community of dieters. It's like, ooh, let's do this. And that's what the Sermon Mount is supposed to be. Chapter 5, when Jesus gives the Sermon Mount, he's not talking to just Peter or just James. He's talking to all the disciples. All the disciples say, hey, this is what the community is supposed to look like. I like, again, what one author says, William Klein. He says, quote, the Sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, it does not envision isolated individuals, disciples, who seek to figure out their obedient responses on their own. Jesus assumes that disciples belong to his community of believers, with whom and for whom they will work out the implications of his instructions. The sermon seems unrealistic to some readers, partly because of their isolation from fellow believers. Would not disciples be more willing to give up a coat if they knew other Christians would be glad to supply them with another? And so we're going to try to do that together too. Where as we exhort you as a church to not just hear, but to practice the principles of the Sermon on the Mount, let's do this together in our community groups. And so expect as you are part of community groups, let's live this out and how can we practice this as a community. But lastly, my final exhortation before we close is some of you are hearing all of this and you're already tired. You're like, oh man, I'm tired already. 15 weeks of talking about what to do, living in the kingdom. You don't know my life. I'm a young parent. I'm like swamped with young kids. I'm just trying to survive. 
or you don't know my season of work. This is like tax season. I'm an accountant, and this, like, this, this is too much. Or, man, I'm, I'm grieving right now. Like, just, like, stuff happening in my life, and life is really hard. And just know if that's you, I get you. I'm a young parent. I have stuff going on in my life, too. It's not easy. But let me, whatever context you're in, let me just give you this encouragement. Jesus is calling you to come and hear and practice the Sermon on the Mount, the ways of the kingdom. Not as expecting you to be these eager young missionaries who are trying to be these radical Christians going crazy. He's calling you where you are. And I know he's calling you with where you are because look how he called his first disciples. The first disciples he called, they weren't these young, eager Jewish zealots going, let's do something crazy. He called fishermen. And these fishermen, they were working in the middle of the work. And Jesus like, in that context, whatever you're doing, come follow me. There were other fishermen working with their father, the family business. And Jesus like, whatever relational context you're in, come. Come follow me. Jesus is inviting them in the normal routine of their life to say, come into the kingdom. And Jesus is doing the same for us. He sees you in the middle of whatever you're doing in your life. And he's calling you in the middle of your parenting, in the middle of your work life, in the middle of your grieving. And Jesus is saying, come, come follow me. I'll show you a new way to parent. I'll show you a new way to work. I'll show you a new way to grieve. And Jesus wants to expose through that just the pride, the pettiness, the sorrow that we're doing with our little kingdoms. And he's saying, hey, come join this greater kingdom. Find a new way to live in the midst of your ordinary life because you will find life when you do that. And so I could offer just one takeaway, one takeaway. If the kingdom of heaven is the place where God's will is being done, just know the kingdom of heaven then, it's less about you being in the kingdom, but how much is the kingdom now in you? Is the kingdom of God in you? What area of your life would you say, you know, God, he reigns here, 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 but he's not reigning here. It's my will, not his will being done. And if I could just challenge us, even our community groups as we meet, what is that one place in your life where you need God's reign to come? And it's most likely the areas of your life that you're most anxious, that you're most burdened, that feels most chaotic. Those are the places you really need a king. You really need a king. And so as I invite the praise team up, can I actually invite us to reflect right now and respond in prayer? And again, that one takeaway. What's the one area in your life where you're like, hmm, I haven't thought about God in this area of my life in a long time. Or if that's not even, you're not even close to that type of realm of thought. It's like, hmm, this part of my life, it's a little crazy. It's a little filled with anxiousness, filled with worry, kind of chaotic. It could be a relationship. It could be a career situation. It could just be something that you're grieving about. Whatever it is, and I promise you, the Sermon Mount is going to touch upon almost every area of life. So we'll get to you. If one week is not relevant, another week will be. What is a part of your life where you're like, hmm, yeah, this is a burden, and maybe I need a new way. And so if I could just invite us to have a moment to reflect, to respond, to just be open and honest before the Lord, and then afterwards I'll close us all together in prayer. So let's take a moment to pause and reflect, and then we'll pray as a church.